It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Tuesday, September 29th, 2020. I'm Erin Fulton with Raven News. A staff member at Sitka's Blatchley Middle School tested positive for the coronavirus late last week, but school resumed as usual on Monday. District Interim Superintendent John Holst says patient privacy laws prevent him from going into too much detail on the case. But he says the district was informed of the positive test on Friday afternoon. From there, he said things went according to plan. The process of that we had set in place worked pretty well, and we were able to get the information out to staff and parents as quickly as possible, which, and we received almost no calls of any sort that I'm aware of. So people kind of accepted this and took it in stride. Blatchley students attend school in the building five days a week in cohorts of 19 students. None of the student cohorts had to be quarantined. Holst says that the public health nurse, Denise Ewing, handled possible exposures through contact tracing. The people who need to be con- uh, contacted were contacted by Denise. And so anybody that didn't receive a contact uh, need not be concerned or worried. The confirmed positive on the staff at Blatchley led to rumors about possible cases in other district buildings, all of which Hulse says are untrue. Overall, he's pleased with the community's reaction to the situation at Blatchley. It's a real compliment to our parents and community members that they don't automatically panic when something happens like this. So, And, you know, we're going to be with this for a while, and it may be quite a while. The adult staff member at Blatchley was one of three Sitkins whose positive test results came in over the weekend. All three cases are male residents. One is in his 20s and did not have symptoms at the time of testing on September 24th. The case was reported on Saturday and is classified as community spread on the city's COVID-19 dashboard. The other two men had symptoms at the time of testing on Saturday and received the results on Sunday. One is in his 20s and the other in his 60s. Sitka has reported 66 total cases of the coronavirus since April. That includes 49 resident cases and 17 non-resident cases. The city has reported eight new cases in the last two weeks and has increased the community-wide alert level from low to moderate as a result. Six emergency responders in Sitka are quarantining after a possible exposure to COVID-19. Outgoing Fire Chief Dave Miller says they were responding to a house fire where one woman died on September 18th. They found out after administering CPR that the patient may have had the coronavirus. Everything happened so fast that uh, CPR was the highest priority and to try to save a life, and that's what we tried to do. He says once they found out about the possible exposure, they immediately followed the emergency response team's protocols for COVID-19. We uh, knew right away what we needed to do, and and that was to quarantine them, you know, get them tested, get them quarantined, test them two or three times to make sure everything was okay with them. And that's the highest priority is just making sure that they're all safe and, you know, sound. Miller says none of the first responders have tested positive for the coronavirus so far. They tested for the second time on Sunday and expect the results back in two to three days. All six will quarantine until next Saturday. There's some big news in the decades-long battle over the Clinton-era roadless rule for national forests. The Trump administration announced last week that it's planning on a full rollback for the Tongass National Forest, aimed at what they describe as maximum additional timber harvest. Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports. The roadless rule, simply stated, forbids road building and industrial activity, with some exceptions, in areas that don't already have them. It covers nearly 9.4 million acres, or just over half of southeast Alaska's Tongass National Forest. Addressing civic and business leaders at Southeast Conference on Friday, Senator Lisa Murkowski praised the federal government's decision. The 
roadless rural is not just about timber. It is about reasonable access for a wide variety of users. Alaska's congressional delegation has long opposed the 2001 rule. So has the state. It sued and settled with the feds to win an exemption that lasted about seven years. So those applauding the decision say don't expect boom times right away, especially not with logging. I don't think it's going to be any more intensive than it was when we had uh, total exemption in the period from 2004 through 2011. Juno attorney Jim Clark is former chief of staff to Governor Frank Murkowski, Lisa's dad. Clark has been helping fight the roadless rule from the beginning. He predicts it'll help the mining and energy sectors, especially hydropower, by making it cheaper and easier to build roads on federal forest lands. But it won't happen overnight. It would be a mistake to oversell uh, either the problems that are going to occur for the environmental community as a consequence of this, or to oversell uh, how much economic development is going to occur as a consequence of this. The thing about the roadless rule is, in Alaska and elsewhere, it's been pretty popular. The Forest Service says it received 411,000 comments, most of those in favor of keeping the status quo. And during two years of public hearings, Alaskans came out in force to defend it in person. The reasons varied. Concern about deer and salmon habitat, preserving wild places for guides to bring tourists. Tribes were particularly vocal about keeping the national forest intact. We really don't want any more uh, industrial logging. Uh, we want to keep what's here because we know the effects of logging. Joel Jackson is president of the organized village of Cake. Old growth timber areas uh, provide for us uh, going out to gather berries and our medicines and also uh, hunt the deer and moose in our area. The feds were required by law to consult with federally recognized tribes that live around the Tongass. But Jackson says he feels like the agency was just going through the motions. I felt like they didn't really listen, and it turned out they didn't. The agency was listening to some. Emails obtained by an environmental organization show a D.C. lobbyist working for the Alaska Forest Association, a timber industry group, set up a telephone call between Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue and Governor Mike Dunleavy last year. The governor's office confirmed the call took place, but released no information of what they talked about. The Alaska Forest Association, whose members were in Washington and in the room during the call, also declined comment. That revelation angered tribal leaders. Tribes had offered to travel to D.C. to meet with Secretary Perdue, but were told only an undersecretary would be available to receive them. Joel Jackson says it's unfair that Trump administration cabinet officials will meet with industry, but not tribal governments. They're just a, a timber uh, association, and the tribes are, uh, are uh, sovereign nations, every one of us. So that really upset me that we were brushed aside. Other arguments against exempting the Tongass from the roadless rule can be lumped into two general categories, economic and environmental. Let's start with the first one. We are concerned that opening up areas where there are not currently roads to timber sales would increase taxpayer losses. Autumn Hanna is an economist with Taxpayers for Common Sense, a D.C. watchdog. A recent report found that timber sales on federal lands cost taxpayers about $2 billion over the past 40 years. We've seen plenty of evidence already that taxpayers would lose significantly more by logging in these old growth areas that are harder to access and have been protected by the roadless rule. The losses happen because the Forest Service actually pays for building new roads used by the timber industry to log public lands. In relatively remote areas with old growth stands of trees, she says, the cost to the public are even higher. So taxpayers are upside down and underwater on these timber sales. 
The Forest Service's final environmental impact statement runs to nearly 700 pages, and critics have already seized on one passage that downplays any impact to climate change. It says more logging would have only a temporary influence on atmospheric carbon concentrations that would get better as the forest grew back. Yeah, I don't buy it, and I think they're kicking the can down the road. There's a lot more impacts that are going to happen. Dominique Delicella is an Oregon-based researcher who's advocated for transitioning all Tongass timber harvests to young growth. He says the Tongass is a vast carbon sink, as other forests in the Pacific Northwest are lost to development, and more recently, wildfire. We've got to recognize that every action has a reaction in terms of the atmosphere, and to deny that, the Forest Service is really denying climate change. So what happens now? Under the federal government's rulemaking process, the Secretary of Agriculture has to wait 30 days from releasing its record of decision. A future presidential administration could work to change that, but would have to go through this whole multi-year rulemaking process from scratch. But there's another piece to the Tongass logging debate. The amount of old-growth timber that can be cut is restricted by the Tongass Forest Plan that sets out a transition to young growth over 15 years. And when Governor Bill Walker's administration petitioned for the roadless rule to be rolled back, it also called on the federal government to revise its 2016 forest plan. There's been absolutely no movement on that by the Forest Service or anybody else. That's Jim Clark again, the Juneau attorney specializing in resource development. This one would be, uh, uh, I think, more difficult than the, uh, uh, what we did on the roadless exemption. So it's a long game, a conflict over natural resources that moves about as swiftly as a forest grows. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. Southeast Alaska had its first big fall storm of the year on Sunday. This is more normal than what last year was. Last year definitely had more of a lamb-type fall, and where this one's coming in with a lion. That's Kimberly Vaughn with the National Weather Service in Juneau. She says windy conditions were recorded all around southeast Alaska over the weekend. The peak wind gust recorded during the storm was in Sitka, 68 miles per hour at Alaska Marine Lines on Halibut Point Road. Rainfall was significant, but not unusual. Just over two inches were recorded falling Saturday and Sunday at the Juneau Airport. And there was a light show to go along with the rain Sunday afternoon in Sitka and then early Monday morning in Juneau. One of the residual things, though, that is happening as the storm is exiting the area is some lightning activity again this morning. So we've actually had indications of a lightning strike down near Taku Inlet and also a big cluster up by just north of Burners Bay. Lightning was also reported along the outer coast of southeast Alaska and up near Yakutat. Vaughn says the high winds, rainfall and lightning occurred as a low pressure system moved through the area. That happened as cold air from Russia and the Bering Strait pressed down on warmer air rising from Gulf of Alaska waters. I'm Erin Fulton and this has been Raven News.